So I'm going to read. Uh, earlier you read the betrayal scene in the Garden of Gethsemane from the Gospel of Mark. I'm going to read the same account, but in Matthew's Gospel. It's Matthew 26, 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so, oh, sorry, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now I imagine sitting in the garden with, with Jesus, the men there would have uh, not realized, understandably, that they're part of a much larger cosmic drama. Maybe they did to an extent, of course, but they probably didn't see, in fact, it's pretty obvious they didn't see the fullness of what was going on. And when you zoom back a little, one of the things you notice is the Bible uses, and if you took an Old Testament class here, you would hear, know a little of this, the Bible repeatedly uses creation language and destruction language. It's almost as if the world is created in Genesis 1, verses, chapters 1 to 3, um, and then there's the fall, and then that, gets, that keeps happening. He keeps trying to restart things, and they keep falling apart. So in Genesis 1, God creates the universe, and Adam and Eve fall in the garden. Then, a few chapters later, um, he destroys the earth by a flood, and the language is intentionally meant to look, to, to indicate that God is returning the world back to chaos, because it's a disaster. And he floods it, which, of course, flood and the tehom, this Hebrew word that means the deep, is returning. Chaos is restored. And then when Noah gets out of the ark, isn't it interesting what God says to him? Go, Noah, be fruitful and multiply. And then the first thing Noah does with his family is plant a garden. And then after that, you then, well, and I have to, I can't do the whole, the whole Testament here. Um, <laughs> but then if you move further on, we fast forward just a little, in Exodus 12, when God has removed Israel from Egypt, he says to them just before the Passover, this is a new year for you. It's a brand new time. As if what is happening is a brand new creation is happening. A brand new thing is happening, and they pass through the waters of trouble again in the Red Sea, and they go out into the wilderness, and they fail again. And then, again, we have to fast forward, they move then into the promised land, which is meant to be all rich with language of a new beginning again, and Israel fails again. We just finished the book of Judges here. Then they get a king, and there's this language that he is to be the new Moses, that, hey, David is here, is a new chance for you, Israel. And what happens? Fail then they go off into exile eventually because the kings let them down. And when they get back from exile, you think things are going to be good. But if you read the books of Nehemiah and Ezra carefully, you see Israel and even Nehemiah fail terribly. 
If that's news to you, go back and reread them and you're going to see what I mean. So, then we get to Christmas. And again, I've obviously just given you the Old Testament very quickly. But we get to Christmas. And there's every indication that at Christmas... Sorry, I got the sense that there was somebody behind me, but there's not. That's weird, isn't there? <laughs> so, Christmas comes. This baby is born, and there's this new thing happening. God is restarting everything again. But this time, he's not leaving it up to you and I to screw it up again. He's going to do it himself. And in Jesus' life, you see what, what the theologians call recapitulation, meaning he is reliving the life of Israel and of humanity, but doing it right. So very briefly, again, can't do everything, but here, here's what you know. He is baptized. He passes through the waters of the Red Sea, right? In baptism. Where does he go right after baptism? The wilderness. But instead of failing the test in the wilderness like Israel did, he masters it. He comes out perfect through it. And then right when, when Moses then goes to Mount Sinai and gets the law, Jesus, next thing he does is goes up Mount, All, Mount the Mount of Olives, right? And then what does he do? Sermon on the Mount. He brings the law, the new, his interpretation is saying, here's what the law is in this new covenant to you. And so you see Jesus reliving the life of Israel, but doing it right, perfectly. And so I have to fast forward. Now you get to the garden. And of course, these guys don't know that what they are doing in the garden is they are representing Adam and Eve in the garden, and they are about to do the exact same thing Adam and Eve did, fail. But they're not alone in the garden, thankfully. Christ is there with them. And so, when Jesus comes, you see the stark contrast in this passage and all of these passages about what he does and how Israel fails and how, he, and how the disciples fail. And de facto, you and I, I've had this conversation with people recently, and I think I said it maybe in sermons as well. Make no mistake, the point of the crucifixion scene and the abandonment is to tell you that you failed. Every one of you failed. It's not the Jews. I've said this before and I'll say it once again. If you think the Jews killed Jesus, I'm concerned that you either misread the Bible or there may even be this latent anti-Semitism in you. This idea that says the Jews are to blame. The Bible does not lay the blame of the cross at the Jews' feet because Pilate is there, refusing justice when he had the opportunity to do it. You can't blame men, ladies, because you do really well, right? Women do really well in the Gospels. Until the Gospel of Mark, when even they run away screaming. Everyone is culpable at the cross. Every single one of us. And when Rome fails, it is humanity failing. Not just the people of God, but all humanity. They represent them. And if that wasn't clear all through history, the disciples then come, and they are you and I again failing at the cross. And here's what we know in the garden. Jesus masters his flesh. He comes out and he says, not my will, but yours. The disciples, they fall asleep. And I'm not blaming them. I get it. I probably wouldn't fall asleep. I'd just be distracted by something shiny. I w that's probably where I would be. But they fall asleep. Jesus submits to God. They submit again to themselves. Jesus passes the test and the disciples fail the test. Jesus delivers humanity by what he does. The disciples deliver Christ to their enemy, to his enemy. He prays in the midst of the trial. They fall asleep in the midst of the trial. In fact, he laments and groans in the trial, suffering in the garden. And the Gospel of Luke says, that, chapters 20, 22, verse 45, I think it is, says that the, the, the reason disciples fell asleep was because they were so sorrowful. So here, imagine Christ is so sorrowful, he seeks God. 
They are so sorrowful, they do what we do. Let's just fall asleep and ignore it for, let's, I can't deal with it, let me just, let's do this. This is more important at the moment. And I'm not, I am blaming the disciples, but I'm not saying they're any different than you and I. You and I are the disciples in this issue. But Christ is there triumphantly, finally, doing what humanity has never been able to do and never would be able to do. And then the question comes, why does he do this? Why does he stay on the cross? What's the point? Why is he there? And the answer has to be, there's two reasons up there. It was many reasons, but at least two. And it comes very plainly written out to us in, in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. When it says, let us run, it's talking about Christians here, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, there's two reasons Christ doesn't run away. He doesn't fall asleep. He doesn't come down from the cross. He doesn't, as the, as the mockers say, call angels to rescue him, right? Save yourself, physician, you know? Why he doesn't do it? There's two reasons. The first one is a little humbling to humanity, I think. But in the garden, what he doesn't say is, I don't want to drink this cup. And of course, if you know your Old Testament imagery, the cup is always the cup of wrath, always. So when he talks about the cup, he's not talking about his physical death primarily. He's talking about the cup that's filled with wrath all through the prophets. And he knows what he's going to suffer is not merely physical death, but estrangement from God, one he should never experience and had never experienced. And that is what he fears more than anything. And when he says that, it's funny, he doesn't say, I don't want to drink this cup, but for the sake of Carl and all these sinners, I'll do it. And now that's part of his motive, but it's not what he says in the garden. What he does say is, your will be done, not mine. Because at that moment in his humanity, do you think he was really in his flesh, loving humanity maybe? As God, son of God, surely. But in his flesh, was he? I don't know, I don't know. But I do know that God never speaks of love in the Bible as an emotion. Very rarely about it. In fact, if ever, he always says love is an act of the will. He says, I will love you, Israel, even when you don't deserve it. He says this very clearly in Deuteronomy. I chose you because I love you, not for any other reason. And so, when you're in trouble all through the Old Testament, you notice what he says, I will save them because of my covenant with Abraham. So, God is so committed to himself, so committed to his own glory, to his own fidelity, his own faithfulness, that he won't let you go. And you better thank him every moment of the day that that's the case. Because it means that even when you are unfaithful, he will be faithful. And so Christ says, my primary goal is to glorify you, Father. I will obey you in this situation. And he does it. So he, he stays and he, he, he goes to the cross because his father has asked him to and he's committed to glorifying his father. But there's another thing there in Hebrews that is very clear. When he says this idea of what is this hope set before him, this joy set before him, and for that let me use an example of a story. And it's a Brothers Grimm fairy tale. It's called King Thrushbeard. It may not be one you've heard very often, but let me give you a, as quick a synopsis as I can. We have this king, and the king has a daughter, and his daughter is very proud, and she's committed to never, ever marry. And every time the king brings suitors to her, she finds reason and fault, reason to reject them and fault in them. And she just mocks them, and at one point he brings a whole host of people, and he just continually, she continually turns them down. And at one point there's a king who she says, look at this man and his crooked jaw, he looks like a thrush, like the bird. 
So he calls him King Thrushbeard, and she sends him off mocked and humiliated. So at, at, at this humiliation, her father is so angry, he says, that's it. Tomorrow, from tomorrow morning on, the next person that comes to the castle, you're marrying. I don't care who it is. I'm just going to give, that's, there's no more of this. So the next morning, a minstrel comes by, which is a, a beggar who, who sings for money. And he's outside the castle singing, and the king says, perfect, come on in. Here's my daughter. And she marries, she's married to this minstrel, this singer. And um, she doesn't like it, of course, but the man takes her very happy, and they're, they're traveling to his home in a little hovel that he owns. And as they're passing, she sees vast lands, and she says, what are these that we're passing? And he says, those are actually belong to the guy you humiliated the other day, King Thrushbeard. So, but don't worry, I've got a nice hovel. It's going to be good. Um, so she's obviously lamenting. Not remorseful, not repentant yet, but she's miserable. Um, so he decides, you know what, you're a princess, but I need a housewife, so you're going to look after my home. And she proves incapable of being a housewife. She doesn't know how to cook, she's miserable, she's no good. He says, fine, fine, maybe you can be a seamstress then. So he gives her work of sewing to help income come in. But she can't do that. She can't weave baskets because her fingers, she's just a princess, her hands have no calluses. So she's useless at everything he tries to put her to. So he says, finally, fine, this is what you'll do. You'll go to the market and you're going to sell my pots. I make pots, you're going to sell them. I got this nice corner stall at the bazaar at the market, you're going to sell them. And he says, you know, you've got nothing else going for you, but you're good looking, so maybe you can sell something. Um, remember, brothers Grimm, guys, don't blame me in this modern age. Um, so she goes. But while she is there, a rough-riding hussar, you know, a man on his horse, comes around the corner and tramples and destroys all the pottery. And so she's going home that night thinking, oh my goodness, I can't do anything right. Nothing. So she goes home, and the man, of course, is upset, and he says, fine, I know that the king, the local king, needs help in his castle. So he makes her a maid. He says, go, be a maid in this house. And she goes, and there's a big ball a big gala one night, and she realizes um, this is an opportunity for her to steal some food. So she starts stuffing her pockets full of food at this, um, uh, at this ball. And she realizes in the midst of it that dancing in the middle of it is King Thrushbeard. And she realizes that this is the castle of the king that she's rejected. He sees her, and he calls her out and says, come, dance with me. And she refuses, but he eventually forces her. And as they're dancing, sorry, a fly's coming at me. As they're dancing, all the food spills out of her pockets, and all the onlookers laugh at her, mock her, make her feel terrible. She's weeping. It's a mess. And here, with that big preamble, here is what the Brothers Grimm write. When the people saw this, everyone laughed and ridiculed her. She was so ashamed that she would rather have been a thousand fathoms beneath the ground. She jumped out of the door and wanted to run away, but a man overtook her on the stairs and brought her back. And when she looked at him, it was King Thrushbeard again. He said to her kindly, Don't be afraid. I and the beggar who has been living with you in that miserable hut are one and the same. For the love of you, I disguised myself. I was also the rider who broke your pottery to pieces. All this was done to humble your proud spirit and to punish you for the arrogance with which you ridiculed me. Then she, bitter, she cried bitterly and said, I was terribly wrong, and I am not worthy to be your wife. But he said, Be comforted. The evil days are past. Now we will celebrate our wedding. Then the maids in waiting came and dressed her in the most splendid clothing, and her father and his whole court came, with, came and wished her happiness in her marriage with King Thrushbeard, and their true happiness began 
only now. And so, that story is so clearly the gospel on display. And I'll say this, I didn't even know so as I'm reading this. Isn't it interesting that even after he is, sorry, what's going on up here today? Even after, even after he has revealed who he is and everything, do you notice the brothers Grimm keep calling him King Thrushbeard? Because he so identifies with the shame, right? And Christ is happy to be identified with our shame. But what is it? When it speaks, and the Hebrews writer says that Christ, for the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. What joy does the Son of God require? Because joy assumes that there's something in front of him that he doesn't yet have, right? And yet, what does the Son of God not have when he goes up on the cross, but has when he gets through and he dies and is raised for us? The answer is you. The joy set before him was to honor God and to do everything to get you And when you see this, and that the last things, he may say, God, your will be done. But when he's on the cross, he says, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Because his joy is to please his father, and his father's joy is to save you. The miserable wretches we are, we are this woman, we are this this princess, who have continually spat on him and shamed him. And you may think, I've been a Christian my whole life, I've been pretty good. No, you haven't. And I'm sorry, I have to be the one to tell you. You haven't been. You, how many times even this week have you and I forgotten him, rejected him, been angry about something we should not have been? Right? How many times have you been mad? I mean, just use me as an example. How many times have you just been really mad at Carl this week? Or your husband? Or your wife? Or your politicians? Or anything? And you think it's justified. It's not justified. The only benefit you have is your sin has been paid for by the one on the cross who suffered even for that gossip and that anger, that misplaced anger. And so, I'll just, I'll close here. Don't let another Good Friday go by without falling at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the one who would endure such shame, such mockery, and rather than rightly and justly cast you aside, instead, do everything he could to come and win you back. I love the language of Hosea, even though it's brutal and it's graphic, when he says that God says, I sit outside the house of my harlot of a wife. While she's sleeping with other men, I stand outside and listen and wait so when she comes out, I can take her home. Gosh, that, that far? It's too much. He goes so far. It's even beyond belief. So Christians and skeptics both reflect and rejoice this week. And if, if you're a skeptic and, you, and you, you're shocked by the bloodiness of the cross and these rituals. First, come back on Easter Sunday and we'll talk about it. But second, I would say this. Remember this. Why do you give thanks before you eat? The answer is, you can only live with something dying. That's why. It's a reminder that you don't live unless something has died, even if you call it a plant. And I'll say even this. The only reason you are alive is because your parents birthed you. The only reason you're here listening to this is because somebody gave their life to make microphones and churches and pay for this building. And therefore, all of our lives are built on the death of somebody else's life. And that's just the normal humanity, let alone... So, so I say that when you look at the cross, it's not as far-fetched as you might think, that your life only exists because one had to die. And yet it's far greater than your family dying for you. Far greater. And again... If you don't get that today, please continue to come here to Redeemer or a church that preaches the gospel. I don't care if it's Redeemer, preferably here because we know what we do here. But we go where God preaches, as God has preached. That's all. Let me pray and the team will come up.